0: your heart and believe what he's done for you. You'll be set for life with the treasures stored up in heaven when you're through. You'll be set for life. We're in first Kings 2, part two, and I'm calling this one the mercy test. Now, before we get into this, I wanted to explain that I used to be in to radio communications. As a matter of fact, I in the 90s, I worked on what's called a paging system. Some of you kids don't know what that is. It's what came before cell phones and before texting. We had these little black boxes we wore on our side, and they didn't talk to any, anywhere. They just received only. I used to work on transmitters. I used to build 300-watt and 900-megahertz transmitters, and I also had to test them. Now, to test them, you put them on what's called a burn-in table, these little boxes with the wheels on the bottom. You could roll them around, and you could hook these transmitters up and transmit them at the shop before you release them out to the customer. The purpose of it is you want to see what they're made of, if they're going to fail. Sometimes we had these transmitters on the burn-in table for almost a week, maybe two weeks, depends. We would try to fail them, and sometimes they would fail. But you don't know which one is going to fail until you test it, until you put it through a little proof to see what it's really made of. Now, (laughs) here's a picture of me next to all the transmitters that failed. These transmitters did not make it. These were all failure transmitters. And I was always very concerned about investors walking through the company, and seeing this big shelf of transmitters, and my manager said, oh, they don't know they failed. Just leave them there. It looks pretty. And to me, they looked terrible because they were failed. <laughs> but, any, hey, that was their call. I didn't, anyway. I used to put them on a burning table to test these transmitters to see which ones were going to work, those that failed or not. So, leading into our story from that, in Chapter 1, Adonijah begged King Solomon for his life? And Solomon gave him mercy and spared his life when he told him in 1 Kings one fifty two, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So Adonijah was basically put on the burn-in table. He was put on it to a test to see if the mercy that he had been given had actually changed him or not. You know, being given mercy should change you. But my question is, did Adonijah bow before Solomon in submission to Solomon's authority? Or did he bow just to fool Solomon into buying himself more time so that he could still try to take what he wanted? The mercy test is going to find him out, what he's really made of. Is he going to fail? Is he going to bomb and end up on the failure shelf? (laughs) Or is he going to make it? Let's find out in 1 Kings 2 and 13. Now Adonijah the son of Haggith came to Bathsheba the mother of Solomon. So she said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. Moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, Say it. Then he said, You know that the kingdom was mine, and all Israel had their expectations on me that I should reign. However, the kingdom has been turned over and has become my brothers, for it was from the Lord. Adonijah's very lungs were still breathing because of Solomon's mercy. Uh, to think he had been had his life spared and didn't have any thankfulness whatsoever is mine, mine, mine. God turned it over. It's supposed to be mine. Oh, my gosh. He, he hates the Lord. This did not spark any thankfulness in Adonijah at all. No change whatsoever. 1 Kings 2 and 16. Now I ask one petition of you, do not deny me. And she said to him, say it. Then he said, please speak to King Solomon, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite as wife. So Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. Now, first off, is there anything wrong with this request, asking for Abishag for his wife? Well, first off, we need to remember who Abishag is. In First Kings 1, when David was sick and about to die, they searched for a young woman through the whole kingdom to keep him warm because David was cold while he was sick, and they found Abishag because they wanted her to lay with him to keep him warm. Now, there's nothing sexual about this at all, but in doing this, Abishag became what's called a concubine for David. A concubine is a woman that lives with a man as though she was his wife, but she would not have the same status as a wife. Now, remember, to give an example, back with Sarah and Abraham, she used Abraham's concubine, Hagar, to bear a son for them because she thought, Sarah thought they were too barren for God to make it miraculously happen anyway, because God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, God, you can't pull this off. We'll help you. Come here, concubine. Uh, Do your role with Abraham. God did not exactly condone the use of Concubines, I don't see that God says, yes, concubines are okay. Rather, concubines were part of the tradition at the time. So Adonijah wanted David's concubine, Abishag, as his wife. Now, first off, that sounds rather disrespectful towards David, who is already dead by this time. But there's a bigger problem with this request than just disrespecting David here. Traditionally, whenever a king left his throne, he left his concubines behind to show the kingdom that he was still in power. Now, you remember when Absalom tried to steal the throne, David had to escape from Jerusalem, Second Samuel fifteen sixteen. The king went out with all his household after him, but the king left ten women, concubines, to keep the house. So now because of that, when David left Jerusalem, Absalom still trying to figure out how to take the throne. He asked David's advisor, Ahithophel, the guy that betrayed David and sided with Absalom to try to take it over. He asked him, how should we steal the throne? How should I go about doing this to actually take the throne from David? Second Samuel 16 and 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house. So Absalom publicly took David's concubines sexually for all of Israel to see. In fact, they pitched a tent way up high on a building to make sure that the whole nation saw him do it because that would show the entire nation that Absalom had taken the throne. Whenever kings took over a throne, they took up concubines to have as many children as they could with prominent men around the land so that they could establish their own house, their own family. David did this. He had a lot of children, and that was how they established their family line That would with powerful, prominent men that would take over the land to establish power. That was a power move, is what that was. Now, once concubines were taken, that's the new king. That's the new ruler, they thought, because now he's going to try to start his own line and establish his own family in the royal kingdom. If you remember, Abner, he tried the same strategy back in 2 Samuel 3, when he tried to take over the throne of ish When the kingdom split, Abner threw ish in real quick because he was a descendant of Saul. The trailer started to roll away, so he needed to throw a rock under the wheel to keep it from getting away. So here, Ishbosheth, get in there real quick. He decided, okay, now I'm going to take the throne from Ish-bosheth. 2 Samuel 3, 7. ish said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? (laughs) So basically, Ishbosheth asked Abner, "Um, dude, are you trying to take the throne away from me too, or what's going on? (laughs) This is how men stole thrones from kings, by taking their concubines. So you can also read in Genesis 35, just as another little addition example here, when Reuben took Israel's, his father's concubines to try to take over. It's just a, just a, a tactic that men tried to do to take over the leadership role. So now you should be able to see why Adonijah's request to get Abishag, David's concubine, as his wife, why that still showed that Adonijah still had intentions to take the throne away from Solomon. He is still trying to do whatever he can to steal that throne. Adonijah figured, you know, with David buried and and gone, he could probably just bypass Solomon and take the throne straight from David if he could just get the nation to see him with David's concubine, Abishag. That's why he requested for Abishag to be his wife. He's still trying to take this throne. But to get to that, He first had to convince Bathsheba to fall for this request, which brings me to the question. Why did Bathsheba fall for this? Why did Bathsheba say, yeah, I'll go talk to Solomon? I think that Bathsheba thought she was helping maybe to mend a bad situation. This is her first opportunity to do something really, really big as the king's mother. Maybe she felt that maybe by playing matchmaker, she could help somehow maybe smooth over a bad situation. I just don't think Bathsheba was quite aware of the traditional implications of Adonijah's request to have the concubine as his wife. I just don't think she sees what the problem is. If she had, I don't think she would have gone to speak to Solomon about it. But she does in 1 Kings 2 and 19. Bathsheba therefore went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed down to her and sat down on his throne and had a throne set for the king's mother, so she sat at his right hand. Then she said, I desire one small petition of you, do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as wife. And King Solomon answered and said to his mother, Now why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother, for him, and for Abiathar the priest, and for Joab the son of Zariah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do so to me and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David my father, and who has established a house for me, As he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down, and he died. Now remember the stern warning that Solomon made in chapter 1 about Adonijah. He said, if he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of his will fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, then he shall die. Solomon issued this warning before Adonijah came to ask for mercy, which means that Adonijah knew. He already knew the terms that the king had set beforehand. Solomon immediately recognized Adonijah's little trick here and how he baited Bathsheba to go talk to him. Which is why he said to Bathsheba, Solomon said, well, why don't you just ask for the whole kingdom for Adonijah then? He's my older brother, right? Isn't that how things work? The older brother gets everything. Just give him the throne. Oh yeah, while we're at it, why don't you just also give him Abiathar and Joab at the same time? Just throw them in with the deal. Why don't we just forget the fact that the Lord himself confirmed and promised the throne to me? No, let's just give Adonijah the whole cotton-picking kingdom. Execute him now. Whoa, wouldn't you just love have just loved to been a fly on the wall and seen that go down? I bet that was quite an eruption. My goodness. But, you know, Solomon was smart. He was a very smart guy. He could immediately see what Adonijah was trying to do here. He tried to get the people of Israel to see him as the official king, because if he could get the people, the majority of He said, oh, Bathsheba, all the people were with me. So he's thinking majority rules here. He's thinking this is like an election. If I can get all the people on my side, then I get to be king. Friends, kings are not elected by majority. Kings are anointed. That's a big thing to remember as Christians, because when Jesus comes back, the majority of the world is going to hate him. But he's not taking votes to see if we're going to let him rule as king. He's coming back as king, whether the majority likes it or not, because Jesus is anointed with the authority to rule forever and ever. And I'll say amen to that and even a hallelujah, right? So kings are anointed. They're not elected. And Solomon's reaction here was justified because, remember, he warned Adonijah before. He gave him mercy. Solomon spared his life, but Adonijah He did not really authentically repent. He didn't really mean it. Oh, I got down before the king and I begged. He didn't mean it. That's the problem here. It was phony. It was fake. The test has proven that Adonijah has failed. Solomon gave him a chance to repent, but Adonijah just did not really do it. So for Solomon to order Adonijah's execution, that was a righteous act on Solomon's part. Because as king, Solomon had to be a good steward. He had to take good care of the kingdom that God had committed to him. You see, when Adonijah plotted for himself to take the throne away from Solomon, which was God's chosen man, then that meant that Adonijah was actually plotting against God's will. This is rebellious behavior. This is God-hating behavior. This was just another attempt by Satan to use one of his little puppets, Adonijah in this case, to try to block the eternal covenant promise that would bring Jesus all the way down to save every one of us. So see, if if Satan could play a trick and get the covenant to break, then God is a liar, nobody can believe him, then no salvation would come to any of us and we'd all be in condemnation. Do you see how serious this is? God holds his covenants together, ain't no man going to break it. But Adonijah had full intent to harm Solomon. He was going to take Solomon out as soon as he had the power. But Solomon was the Lord's newest anointed king. Can you see how selfishness will actually make a person work against God's will? 1 Kings 2 and 26. And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your own fields, for you are deserving of death, but I will not put you to death at this time because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. So Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. Okay, so who is Eli and what's Shiloh and what's this got to do with anything? For those of you who have been with me, we just went through a long tunnel and we got to see a prophecy come out on the other end. We entered into the prophecy a long time ago in history, and now we just saw the other side. And I love it when we get to the other side of these long-awaited prophecies to happen. Let me explain. Eli, who is that? Eli was a priest who served in the tabernacle when it was in Shiloh, when Samuel was just a boy. This was before David ruled. This was before Saul even ruled, which means that Eli lived during the time of the judges. as long before the time of the kings. Now, this guy, Eli, the priest, his sons were also priests, but they misused their priestly role. They stole from people. They even went as far as to lure prostitutes into the tabernacle to have sexual relations with them. Yes, in the tabernacle. They stole also, and this made it even worse, they stole from the Lord's sacrifice to use for themselves. They were stealing, not just from people but even from the Lord's sacrifice. And their dad, Eli, never used his God-given authority to do anything about it. He never tried to put a stop to it at all. So the Lord sent a prophet to Eli to say in 1 Samuel 2.31, Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. To cut off someone's arm, that meant the Lord was going to cut off Eli's strength, his influence. He would cut short the strength of Eli's family. And so after all these years, I mean, this was decades prior to where we're at, right up until Solomon took the throne here in First Kings 2, this prophecy against Eli was finally fulfilled when Solomon fired Abiathar from the priesthood and sent him home. Because Abiathar was straight from that priestly line of Eli. He was from Eli's line. God had delivered on the promise that he spoke through his prophet many years before. And now Abiathar is fired and he's gone. And that's the end of Eli's line in the priesthood. Why did Abiathar join Adonijah to try to steal the throne from Solomon because Abiathar was tainted with this rebellious attitude that came all the way down from Eli through his sons, and it's still plaguing the priestly line. This is a good example of what a generational curse looks like. Let me show you something about that while we're here. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Okay, Abiathar hated God. He was operating in opposition to the Lord's will. And Abiathar was actually a priest for crying out loud. Look at this. Imagine thinking that there are even pastors today. They have the position, they have the role. They're out there looking the part, but in reality, they hate God. And they're working against the Lord's will. Can you imagine such a thing? But if Abiathar had honestly loved God, he would have agreed with the Lord's covenant decision to anoint Solomon to be king. He would have never turned against Solomon and joined Adonijah. That's the problem with Abiathar. But since Abiathar had an inner hatred towards God... He joined Adonijah's attempt to steal the throne. Abiathar demonstrated bad judgment from what his heart truly believed. So to recap our study, the way that Adonijah was proven to be false was by his behavior. You know, your behavior always will rat you out on who you really are. Now, remember, Solomon had put Adonijah to a test. He said, if he comes out worthy, then good, he won't die. But if we find wickedness in him, he's going to die for it. The king was smart. Solomon was a smart guy. Adonijah could not fool him because what was really, truly in Adonijah's heart, his inner intentions would eventually prove outwardly who he really was by his actions. But remember that before Adonijah came to the king, he first ran off and grabbed the horns of the altar. The altar is where the people would go to ask for forgiveness of their sins, and that's why he ran to that altar because he was saying, "Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me!" Oh, please forgive me! And then he bowed before the king. Oh, spare me, please! I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but he didn't mean it. Friends, I want you to really look at this next verse. Hebrews ten twenty six says. For if we sin willfully, see that word willfully, that doesn't mean you accidentally slipped up or backslid a little bit, but you meant to do it. You wanted it. You had an inner drive, an inner hatred towards God, a rebellion. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. So Adonijah, he had the terms placed on him by the king. He says, you keep on with your craziness and you're going to die or accept the mercy and change, have a new life about the way you see things and you will be spared. Now, Hebrews 10 here, it tells us after you receive the terms of the king, what are the terms of the king here? It says, the hearing the knowledge of the truth. That means you heard the gospel of your salvation. You heard the king's terms. But if you hear that, and then you continue onward in willful sin. Adonijah was demonstrating willful sin. When you continue onward in willful sin, then there's no sacrifice left that applies to you. Christian, if you've heard the gospel of your salvation, but you're continuing in willful sin. This means there's no sacrifice of Jesus that applies to you because you never bowed to King Jesus' authority. You may have bowed, but you did not bow in submission if you're still in willful sin. Most people today have this claim I gave my life to Jesus, but they're still persisting in willful, deliberate sin. Thank you for listening to Set for Life. We hope you can join us next time, unless Jesus returns for us first. Set for Life is the radio ministry of Pastor Ray Jensen of Calvary Chapel Pearland. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast at SetForLifeRadio.com. Hi, this is Ray Jensen. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to encourage you in God's Word. If the Bible doesn't excite you, then you're not reading it. I want you to remember that you are not worthless. You are priceless. Messiah Jesus died on the cross to redeem you so that you can be set for life.